Today on the show, we are exploring the world of casino compliance in a conversation with two industry leaders, Chris Benton. I'm uh, Chris Benton. I'm the director of compliance for WinBet, uh, where I manage uh, the AML program and responsible gaming program. And Benjamin Floyd. My name is Ben Floyd. I'm the president of Connectify Advisors. Connectify Advisors is a full-service compliance consulting firm, advisory services, program management, as well as outsourced compliance. And this is the Connectify podcast. I'm uh, Chris Benton. I'm the director of compliance for WinBet, uh, where I manage uh, the AML program and responsible gaming program. I was one of those weird kids who knew they were going to get into gaming when I was very little. Uh, most kids were playing Super Mario. I was playing Caesar's Palace Deluxe, learning all the games. Got my bachelor's degree at Sonoma State, which is located in Napa Valley, and got a dealer job right out of college, which to this point is still the best job I ever had. Please be a dealer if you ever get a chance to got my MBA and master's in gaming at UNLV, took a role as a gaming analyst, which is a great job, wanted to be more on a property level, uh, then took a position at Stations Casinos, where it was my first exposure to AML from an internal audit perspective, fell in love with it, uh, then got a position at Caesars, essentially doing the same thing, uh, but on a much bigger scale. Was then very fortunate to take a position at Betfred, which is a European online gaming company that we're expanding into the U.S. with online sports betting push, uh, where I built their program and managed their program from an AML perspective. Um, and now I pretty much do the same thing uh, for, for WinBet, again, on a much bigger scale, where I was able to build their program and currently manage their AML and responsible gaming program. My history is uh, started out a little, uh, a little different from, I know, from Chris. So my educational background was actually in uh, Slavic studies, and I uh, received uh, my bachelor's and master's degrees in, in Slavic and uh, went in a different direction after school. From a compliance and anti-money laundering background, started a little over 20 years ago uh, at T. Rowe Price, a financial institution on the, based in the East Coast. And uh, after 9-11, I was tap to help help the company implement its response to the USA Patriot Act. So that was my introduction really to, to the industry, to the AML industry. After T. Rowe Price, I went to Walmart, a completely different industry, of course, retail, and Walmart is also one of the largest money services businesses in the US. And I managed their BSA AML compliance program and uh, ultimately prior to leaving led the global the global compliance function for anti-money laundering at Walmart. Changing industries once again, I went to the gaming industry, to Caesars Entertainment, where I had a, a global role there in overseeing the AML, BSA AML compliance program for Caesars. So, and now I'm in, in, in a consulting role and, and loving it. So. <laughs> so Chris, I always like to talk about career paths. And so maybe we can have a, a conversation about that. I, uh, as as I just mentioned, kind of my, my career path has been has been different from yours, and you know, frankly, most of the compliance officers I know didn't know they wanted to be a compliance <laughs> officer, right? When they were going to, going to school, it's kind of most people. I think it's kind of a 
not necessarily a meandering path, but but not a direct path anyway to to compliance. So maybe if you could you could talk a little bit about how you how you got to your role, what uh, what experiences you had that that um, you know that helped prepare you for the role that you're in you're in today. It's a good question. I, I know the gambling industry is such a unique uh, industry, and it's it's always curious to see how people get there, whether they they knew they were getting into gaming or not. For me, like I said, I, I am one of the weird ones who knew they were going to get into gaming uh, very little. Uh, I, I personally always thought I wanted to be like a, a general manager uh, in gaming, and that's kind of how I started and uh, became a dealer. Uh, and again, the best best job I ever had, and it gave me great experience. But uh, what I realized too is that I, I am a numbers person, and I, I like being on the back end and looking and analyzing situation from a gaming lens. Uh, and that's why I was fortunate to take a position in internal audit. Now, I've actually started as a, a gaming analyst for a consulting company, which I got to travel the country and see other uh, casinos, do feasibility studies, very macro level stuff. But I really want to get on the property and, and analyze it up from the back end uh, a little more specifically than what I was doing. But uh, internal audit from a career perspective, and I know internal audit gets a lot of flack for a lot of different reasons, uh, but it is a really good springboard for somebody's career, uh, regardless of if they're in gaming or not, because you really do get a lot of exposure to a lot of different items. And that is what exactly happened to me. Uh, I fell in love with the AML side of it. The auditors, most auditors didn't want to touch it because it's very specialized. So right. I took it on, got, you know, I said, this is great for me. And then I realized this is for me and I got certified in it. And uh, now I'm on the operations AML side. So that that's kind of how I ended up. But yeah, I think uh, in, from a career perspective, internal audit was a great springboard to find what I was looking for. Personally, I've been in compliance, AML operational roles uh, pretty much Pretty much my whole career, you know, didn't have an audit background, uh, but from T. Rowe Price on, an analyst, uh, compliance analyst, as well as managing and developing programs. And I think it, for me too, just what's been helpful in my career is moving, really moving industries. Uh, so I mean, there's there's benefits to <laughs> being in you know being in one industry for a long time, and I think but I think for me personally, what I've enjoyed about I like building things. So um, being able to go into different industries and kind of learn a different application uh, to BSA AML and look at risks differently, how they manifest themselves differently has kind of helped me, helped me in my career path as well. You know, it's good and bad. You can have, you could be in one industry a long time. You feel like I got it, you know, but unfortunately for that experience can kind of give you a little bias and kind of blend your view of everything. And, and you really do need different viewpoints in terms of, you know, for AML, where the risk coming from. And when you have somebody come in from a different industry from gaming, it's a whole new ball game because these people look at things differently and you're mm -hmm. sitting there like, wow, I have all these experience, but I never looked at it that way. And I think that's really important that we do have people that come in and have a different viewpoint. And for, for just for any type of uh, department really, just to give, a different view sometimes. So I, I, I agree with you 100%. So how do you keep current? Like there's so much, so much going on, right? In the industry, in compliance. When we are, when we talk about the idea of staying current, it, it could be staying current in terms of AML, staying current in terms of state regulations, staying current with just the industry in general, 
there's just a lot to stay current about from an AML perspective. It's kind of nice because yes, we have all these new gaming operators moving into all these jurisdictions, states that they've never been into before the AML requirements stay the same because it's federal. Mm -hmm. That's the one nice cushion that you have for that. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it really doesn't necessarily become a, Oh, this is something new. I have to learn issue. It becomes a scalability issue. Uh, because just AML, just like any other compliance department, we are limited with the amount of staff that we have. So I think that's that's where the, the bigger issues comes there. And I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later. Uh, but as far as current in terms of state regulations, uh, it's really a trial by error. You know, sometimes we're, we're, we're pushing buttons and say, oh, that didn't work. We're not doing that again. Um, right. And I think the entire industry uh, can relate to the we are building the plane as we fly, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So we kind of learn from our mistakes and just keep pushing. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly there's some there's a lot of common themes, right, that run through, but still a lot of nuances when you go jurisdiction by jurisdiction. So it certainly keeps it keeps it challenging for sure. Mm -hmm. Are there any leadership lessons or practices that you, that have helped you in your career? I have been very lucky, uh, or especially over the last couple uh, positions I've had with Betfred and now with Winbet, I've, I've worked to some really good leaders. So for me, I, I had it easy in a way because I could kind of just replicate what they were doing into my position uh, because it, you know, it was easy. When somebody is a leader, you know right away and you take away what they're doing to your other positions and your other responsibilities. Just something that I've always learned is I just kind of go. Uh, and that's good and bad. Uh, some people are like, I, you know, or, or I don't want to say this the wrong way. Some people are kind of afraid to, to make a mistake, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and sure. they can be a little hesitant for me. I'm the exact opposite. I will probably make that mistake, learn from it and then keep going. Right. So, you know, again, there's no wrong or right way. Everybody's different from a personality perspective for me in terms of how I kind of grow uh, as a leader, it's, you know, kind of go with you, what you know, and, and if you do make a mistake, learn from it and keep going, just, you know, trust yourself, trust your knowledge and kind of push through. Make a decision, right? As a leader, you've got to make a decision. Um, and sometimes it's not the right one. <laughs> and as, as, if you can mm. course correct as quickly as you can, um, that obviously helps things. But, um, but also, you know, for me, it's, it's learning to listen to, you know, for understanding, um, asking questions and involving others. I think probably the, the, the biggest mistakes I've made in my, in my career has been when I haven't, like I've, I've determined or decided which direction I wanted to go, what decision I wanted to make and didn't listen enough to others. <laughs> so you think, you know, and you, and you just kind of go with it, which is, which is good. I mean, you have to trust your own knowledge, but yeah, mm -hmm. like listening to, to other people, even again, it's that, different viewpoint, even people that are outside of AML, you know, what I deal with all the time and just like other, other AML professionals deal with is you have to factor in the business decision, especially if you're thinking about, well, I have these group of people. They, if I, you know, from a compliance side, I ban them all because they're all high risk, but from an operation standpoint, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa there's, there's these, these people are generating revenue. And so on. you have to look at different viewpoints for making that correct decision. It just can't all be on that one general uh, lane. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges in just managing a compliance program across across multiple jurisdictions? That's obviously the, the role you have today. That's where you are. And you've mentioned that for at least from an AML standpoint, of course, there are federal regulations. 
what are some of the things, what does it look like to you when you're trying to uh, make sure that WinBet is, is, you know, compliant and all the jurisdictions that it's operating in and mindful of, of all those differences? From an AML perspective, it is the scalability uh, issue. It's how do I scale this AML program for states that are being added so quickly? Because if you look traditionally at gaming, this doesn't happen. You, you don't have an operator or a gaming operator that all of a sudden is now in seven new right. <laughs> jurisdictions in the same year, unless there's some sort of acquisition, but then you're, you are, you're kind of already acquiring uh, uh, the department already. So you kind of have that right. built in. How do you scale this uh, and to keep up? And that, that is really a, a, a challenge. Uh, and even more so from a responsible gaming side, it, it's trying to figure out how the heck do we manage every one of these requirements for every state that's different <laughs> and making sure because each state is so unique in what they require for responsible gaming mm -hmm. that it's just uh, it's it's a madhouse sometimes and trying to doing one thing in one state will not be sufficient in another. And it's a, it's a struggle for, for understanding how to manage that resource wise. For managing that. I mean, do you yeah. like create, as you, as you go into new jurisdictions, do you just create like a matrix of here's some, you know, the common themes or compliance requirements that, that you've encountered and then add in for responsible gaming. Uh, we do have to have a matrix and a, a lot of items are all manual uh, for online sports betting right now. AML programs, responsible gaming, everything is manual. We don't have automated systems yet. And yes, as far as a matrix goes, we have one that shows for every single state, what are the requirements, the uniqueness of each one, what does that result to, who is responsible. And it's it's time consuming. It's very time consuming because uh, it, it, again, it's a, it's a manual process, so it's, it's difficult, but that's really the only way we can do it right now. And uh, I know some operators, they will have devoted people to responsible gaming to actively manage these uh, matrices. We're all on the same boat when it comes to that. It's PASPA, yeah. So the repeal of PASPA left it up to the states to implement their own um, laws on around sports betting. And that, that ultimately is what um, made other states be able to, to introduce uh, laws. Like pre previously, there were some grandfathered states, uh, Nevada being one of them, uh, but then the, most of the states, it was uh, restricted, opened up the floodgates, so to speak. It didn't, it didn't make it legal everywhere, but it made it possible for states to implement laws uh, to permit sports betting in their, in their states. Tell, tell me a little bit about like the general differences in your experience from online gaming, AML, obligations and managing AML obligations around online gaming versus uh, brick and mortar because you know you've you've operated in both environments and looked at it from different perspectives from an AML standpoint you're really looking at five broad items uh, no matter if it's online or retail your, your SARS your CTRs your KYC your OFAC and your training for online gaming and online sports betting, there's really one big omission on this list. And if we're talking only about online gaming transactions, and that's CTRs, because there are no cash transactions. 
which takes a huge chunk out of those, of those five items. Now, I know that there are some online gaming companies that also have retail locations that take cash deposits at the cage or sportsbook for their online gaming accounts. Uh, but usually the physical operators are the ones that are responsible for filing those uh, CTRs. It, but generally speaking, uh, but the online sports betting companies are, you know, they're not dealing with cash transactions. So if there are no CTRs, where are the resources devoted to? And it really comes down to KYC and SARS. Mm -hmm. And we can have hour long discussions on those two topics specifically. Uh, but generally, uh, you know, you have your online operators really focus on the KYC, which is one, which is the ID verification upon account registration. So making sure that the information that somebody submits is correct and it's accurate. And also your EDD on your high volume patrons, which is which can be also found in a retail AML program. Uh, the second one, again, to do with the SARS, we have to have a way to actively monitor our high volume accounts for suspicious activity like minimal gaming and offset betting. Unfortunately, right now it's very manual. So that's that's kind of the way it is. Uh, we can also look at deposit methods, the attempts, you know, again, we could spend hours discussing all the different things that we could look at, but the SARS and the KYC aspect for both the federal and state requirements uh, are really where the, uh, the main resources are going to for an online AMO program. Mm -hmm. Do you find that, uh, I mean, in some respects, data availability in the online environment um, is less complex or less complicated, I should say, than in, than in a brick and mortar? Yeah, and I hate to give this answer, but it's a yes or no <laughs> answer. Yeah. It, you know, it, from just a purely transactional standpoint, absolutely. We have a record of every single transaction and wager that these patrons make, uh, which is which is fantastic compared to a traditional race and sports book where they're filling manual MTLs out for their high limit customers, which, you know, you're not you're not capturing everything. So right. uh, that from that perspective, absolutely. And again, there is a lot more data. The problem is, what do you do with all this data and how do you make it work from an AML perspective? And that is a challenge because what happens is you have a bunch of data in different locations and to try to connect these, these three or four systems to talk the same language and to show and create a report that is going to be beneficial for, for an AML professional like myself is not easy because it requires IT resources for a, a department that doesn't generate revenue. So it, it's difficult to get the resources necessary to build these reports. And just the massive amount of data, what are we gonna be looking at because this is gonna be new to everybody in terms of minimal gaining and in terms of suspicious wagering, You know, how, how do we make these uh, work? So it's really controlling and managing the data. That's, that's the biggest uh, issue. But uh, overall though, I, I think we, it, it does reduce the risk uh, substantially because we can see all the patrons transactions. It introduces different challenges as well, right? Because you know, the challenge with online non-face-to-face -face interaction is it can be, depending on what solutions and tools you're using, it can you know, create more opportunity for someone to provide a false, false identity. Yeah, and that's that's a 
talk about another huge risk there that didn't exist prior. Uh, you know, we have KYC at the beginning of this, which meets federal and state regulations. You put it in your social, first name, last name, date of birth, address, everything checks out great. And we're sitting there and we're saying, yes, we can, we can pinpoint exactly what this patron is doing all the time, where the money's going. Great. But we can't see the patron. We never see them. We, we don't know who's actually pushing the buttons or creating these accounts because I can steal your identity or, you know, unfortunately, social security numbers and all that stuff are available on the dark web for not that expensive, you know, cheap. I can create this account and I, I would never know. And now I am acting under somebody's name and doing all these transactions. So in a way, online gaming gives a slight false sense of security with the amount of data and transactional visibility that we have. But the fact that we cannot see the patrons actually pushing those buttons and making the wagers opens up a whole new Pandora's box of risk in terms of ID fraud uh, and all that stuff that comes with it. So it, it solves one problem and it creates a whole nother big one. There's other technologies out there that get it specifically this issue where they'll, you know, you can upload a picture of an ID and then the customer's required to take a picture of themselves or a live feed, basically, just enough so that there's some liveness detection there to make sure that it's actually a real person. There's somebody in front of that camera. For Nevada, believe it or not, they're one of the strictest. So mm. when, when you try to create an account, no matter which operator you use, you have to go in, take a selfie, uh, you know, with your with your ID, make sure it's you, send it in. And that's a requirement per Nevada to open an account, which is a very conservative approach compared to other jurisdictions where all you have to do is just put in your ID information. If everything matches, you're good to go. Right. Uh, there's also uh, some more of an automated process where, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds of KYC and understand like the manual KYC aspects of this, but you can upload your ID, it'll read all the information and, you know, that that helps us move the process, but you have to factor in the social security number. So there's, there's so many moving pieces, but for the most part, in most jurisdictions, you don't have to take a picture of yourself or, you know, your ID unless you mm -hmm. can't pass KYC. And then you get what's known as manual KYC, which is a, a manual review of your account. Lots to keep you busy, that's for sure. Yes. <laughs> Responsible gaming. You mentioned that responsible gaming, Chris, is part of your responsibility as well. And um, just curious, your what you've experienced, your thoughts around the intersection of anti-money laundering and responsible gaming as uh, as areas of compliance, and how they maybe not overlap so much as if there's a, a move to to have them more integrated, as far as understanding the risks that someone who's not gaming responsibly could ultimately resort to criminal activity? It's a good question. And I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is a commingling of responsibilities for AML professionals and Archie requirements. Initially, it's kind of hard to understand that from afar. Like, How does somebody who deals with anti-money laundering start managing people that might need help with responsible gaming? They just don't they don't really connect uh, from the outside. In my opinion, I, I think the result of this is coming from two items. One, it's because of compliance resource restrictions, because, you know, 
as many hats as we can give somebody and if they can do it great you know i i think that's that's an important part unfortunately the the other one is especially for online gaming uh as we go into all these jurisdictions is kind of what i've done what i have found is be called like the patron police position of compliance we, at, at, for for online jurisdictions in every state we are required to make sure that say for indiana uh, banned patrons aren't going to be able to play self-excluded patrons aren't going to be able to play and a list of other ones that aren't going to be able to play along with any type of aml uh patrons that we find as well and from a business perspective it's easier to go to one compliance person who basically is in charge of saying anybody that's banned or anybody that doesn't is not allowed to play for any reason from a federal or state regulation standpoint, that's the person I'm going to go to. Because that's kind of what I am. That's how I was in Betfred. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, it seems to be that patron kind of police. Who's that going to be to make sure pe that people that aren't playing, aren't playing? Whose job is that? And it, it usually gets pointed uh, to one person. Another reason is, um, you know, that that wonderful, great feeling that you have uh, when you go into a jurisdiction, knowing that your federal AML requirements are always going to be the same. Well, you, you can obviously throw that out the window for state. And since everything changes, the more people you have on that, the more difficult it becomes to manage. So one point of contact for all the states is, is why it ends up being uh, how it ends up uh, being created. Well, there's some jurisdictions, you know, out, outside of the U.S., like U.K. in particular, that's you know, long been focused on responsible gaming and the responsibility of operators to um, uh, to really perform an assessment of uh, you know, a reasonableness assessment, right? Do they are they are they gaming within their means? So a lot of proactive obligations, which is in many in some instances the right thing for the customer, right? To make sure that they're they are gaming within their means and they're and they're safe, so to speak. Um, and we're seeing that in other jurisdictions as well, like Canada. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, I think, over time, how much in the U.S. those uh, practices come together and if the regulatory expectations you know, change with respect to how much proactive uh, elements there'll be in evaluating you know, customers' source of wealth and, and whether, or not, whether or not they're playing within their means. Because this is not a federal, it, there's no federal mandate for responsible gaming. It comes down to the states, and I hate to I, I just to say it was I'm not naming any states here, but some states don't care as much as other states, uh, and it's you know you try to keep up with the expectation of certain states whilst realizing that okay, well this is not going to be necessary for over here, but it's really necessary for this state. Uh, you know, and there's really bad consequences uh, if we if we if we don't follow that. And it's for for the states that are the strictest in terms of the expectations for responsible gaming. We are seeing that it's going down that path where it's not just, OK, that's great. You have responsible gaming links. Wonderful. You, you need to be more proactive for your patrons and help them uh, a, a little more dynamically. Uh, to, to see if maybe there's reports or something that could get alerts you that this person might have a responsible gaming issue. And then you can go ahead and take action. It's difficult because we are gaming compliance people. We are not uh, 
not doctors, we can't diagnose somebody with a responsible gaming issue, but still it's going down that route where the operators are being required to take a little more proactive approach. So Chris, what, what kind of trends are you seeing? Just curious about emerging trends in the sports betting industry uh, that could be with respect to you know, risks or just developments in the, in the business. Um, so things, for example, that, that stand out to me are things like, you know, count takeover fraud or cyber risks in an online environment. Um, those are evolving. The, the expectations are evolving in terms of reporting and monitoring of those types of events. But um, what kind of trends stand out to you as, as interesting that you're, that you're monitoring? Really, it, it's all in the identification fraud department right now. I, I think the the bad actors know that a lot of these gaming operators are pushing quickly. There are weaknesses to the create an account, get money on, get money off, and they are taking advantage of it as of right now. Uh, all the operators are getting hit by fraud rings across the country in an attempt with stolen IDs to try to create accounts with stolen credit cards and the credit cards will work because it matches the patron information that they supplied. Mm -hmm. They get money on with a credit card, gamble a little bit or they're not gonna be able to withdraw their money. So they'll, 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 they'll do a little betting and then withdraw it. The, the ones that don't end up getting caught, but the ones that do will, will play and then um, proactively if there are no other controls in place that the gaming operator has, what happens is they're going to get a call from their bank where the bank's going to call, hey, what my, one of my customers said they have fraudulent chargers. Somebody tried to use the deposit money on WinBet, then they have a chargeback. And chargebacks are one of the, the, <laughs> the biggest challenge for gaming operators right now because chargebacks are hard to win, generally speaking, uh, especially when you tie in the fact that there's these large fraud rings that are that are hitting uh, online gaming companies so it, what the online gaming operators are trying to do right now is to try to get ahead of the game it's always that cat and mouse so they are saying all right how do we how do i keep these people from uh, creating the accounts to begin with and we have uh, device id alerts are being implemented ip address alerts uh, and i know that there are a lot of uh, there's third parties uh, software where they'll track somebody's ID or excuse me, their email connected with their IP. And they have a lot of different fraud connections to alert the operator and says, no, 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 this, this is not somebody you want on here. Right. And it will block right. the account before getting on there. So that that's, that's the big one right now. And I, I believe in the next year or two, we'll have a much better grasp of it, but it's, it's a big challenge that a lot of operators are facing right now. Yeah. So in, the, in that type of scenario, are you seeing the transactions that are being conducted? Are they, are, are loads that are being made to accounts from those, those stolen, using those stolen identities and stolen payment methods? Are they, do they start small and go larger? Do they? Yeah, so they'll they'll probe. Uh, you'll see the ones that are like small and then they'll start ramping up. And you'll see this after, if it's not caught, what, what you'll see is you do a, a huge, review and you may see they started small and then slowly amp their way up until kind of until they get caught in a way to, to kind of test them and test the system but yes they will deposit small and then withdraw small usually on a more specific 
uh, level, they'll use the credit card to deposit and then they'll withdraw to either a PayPal or a other online account, mm-hmm. which is that they, they have control of to get their money out. So, you know, credit card in, PayPal out. And that's the biggest, that's the biggest trend you'll see when, when somebody uses uh, a deposit method that's different than their withdrawal method. That's a red flag. Right. However, there's a lot of cases where it's not because I people want to use their credit card to deposit, but you can't withdraw to a credit card. So you kind of have to, you have to balance those. But that that would be the ramping up of transactions uh, plus the different deposit and withdrawal methods would be some red flags to look for. Is it fair to say that that's usually done over a fairly short period of time, as opposed to like seizing an account, um, keeping a balance, and then kind of hitting it? Yeah, these are almost like a hit and run. They'll create an mm-hmm. account, get money out, move move to the next one because they know that somehow that the account's going to get flagged. So it's just a hit, 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 quick, quick, quick. It's it's not one account for a big amount. It's a lot of accounts for smaller amounts, which obviously makes it more difficult for the operator to track and to figure out and, and group, especially for SARS. Uh, you know, these are all these, you know, if they're over 5K, we're filing a SAR on it and it becomes difficult to manage. And what you end up with is this big SAR with a lot of these account numbers, but it ends up being an unknown SAR because mm-hmm. you don't know who's the victim because the people that are on the account, we're assuming these are the ones that had their identity stolen. So obviously you're not filing a SAR on them, but you don't know the actual people that are the bad actors. So it just becomes this really big unknown SAR. And it's frustrating at times because it's only, it's only, so much help that that could obviously give Vincent, but obviously we put the IP addresses and any other uh, mm-hmm. important information, but that that's end up what's happening for those type of situations. Yeah. So that usually what you're tying those together, those instances together with or IP or. Yeah. I, I see IP specifically because there's an IP address requirement right on the SAR. Um, but there are other, a lot of other factors that come into play here again from a, a, a geo comply perspective if they're all coming from the same general area right. uh, again the ip address uh, device id, ID sure. any 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 operator will tell you device id is much much more important than ip address i yeah. know ip address is on the sar form but an ip address can be manipulated so easily uh, using a number of different methods that it really comes down to the device ID uh, more than anything. Obviously, you look at the transactional uh, the transactional history, if it's the same type of pattern, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of other things that, that come into play, and obviously that would go on a SAR narrative. Uh, but but yes, um, it's, just, it's just finding those uh, consistencies. Interesting. It's an interesting topic, for sure. Yes, yeah. And, and again, you know, I mean, we all know that AML and fraud, they, they just, they overlap, they go hand in hand, really. And right now, the fraud side of it for online gaming and online sports betting is really pushing AML. And that's mm-hmm. really what a lot of the, the SARS are coming from right now. Well, I was just looking and, um, you know, fraud is is number four on the prior, FinCEN priorities list, uh, the priorities they, they issued last year. Uh, so corruption, cybercrime, terrorist financing, and then number four, fraud. At least from a uh, from an operator standpoint, it, it's not it's not really going to be about identifying who the bad actors are. 
where a traditional SAR, you can, in most cases, you might know who it is, you might have information on them, and you can send it. Here, it's not really going to be identifying who those people are. I think the expectation of the operators are going to be, all right, well, how do you prevent them from opening the account to begin with? That That's really, that's really the main goal that right. we're going to have to shoot for. From what I'm seeing on the ground floor, you know, we're going to, we're seeing some slowdown from some of the marketing and promotions that a lot of these big mm -hmm. online gaming companies are doing now. Uh, it's no real secret that none of the online gaming companies are profitable right now. And it's becoming clear that many operators, even the big ones, uh, realize that the patron acquisition costs were higher than they expected. And we're seeing that in stock prices for DraftKings and whatnot. And what it means is I think a lot of these companies aren't going to be able to hang. And it, the market is kind of ripe for consolidation. Uh, and we, we don't really know who's going to make it, but at the end of the day, it's a 5% business. And so there's, a, there's only kind of support so many uh, companies. In my opinion, I think the long game for a lot of online sports betting companies slash gaming companies is the plan for online casinos. Uh, if a lot of, if these states can start uh, allowing online gaming along with online sports betting, I think the market is could explode, but it's it's a, it's a tougher sell. It's a tougher sell uh, than sports betting, but generally that's that's what I'm seeing right now. But we'll see in the next year or two how many uh, kind of operators are left. Yeah, well, anecdotally, that's my understanding is that iGaming is a more profitable than than sports betting, and I'm not sure if that's based on customer acquisition or. Yeah, so I mean, sports betting just in general, you're going to have a, I'll use the word house advantage. It's, obviously, it's called VIG and sports betting, but you, it, it's probably going to be around five or six percent. And that's not even, in, that's just your average better. That's not including people that are like advantage betters, which are known as sharps. And so you have mm -hmm. those people fact, and you just have smart money, unfortunately, in sports betting. Uh, parlays are, are kind of where the money is at for, for sports betting right now. And you'll see a lot of the operators pushing those as, as hard as they can. Comparing those to your more traditional gaming, you have slots and specific table games that are holding like 13, 14% and don't really mm -hmm. have necessarily the volatility. So, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a reason why sports betting is becoming so popular. I think because there's a level of fairness, you know, you can bet on any team. Um, so I think it's definitely contributed toward its growth. But at the end of the day, it does not nearly have the same margins as your traditional table games or uh, right. slots. This has been great, Chris. I really appreciate it. I mean, was it, I, I don't know. I just, <laughs> was it all right? Or was it good? Was it terrible? Thanks again to Benjamin and Chris for joining us on today's podcast. Make sure to tune in for the next episode. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at connectify.com. And thanks again for listening to the Connectify podcast.